Hello everyone, welcome to the Untold Stories podcast where we unfold the events that led some of the modern successful entrepreneurs to reach prosperity. We want to thank you so much for tuning in and if you want more content from us, you can follow us on our social media accounts at Startup Bogovgrad. Ivaro Danilov is here with us today. He's a co-founder of the current companies Dowcower and Skyry Fund, graduated from Newcastle University and got his Bachelor of Laws with honors. Uh, his two startups which is, in which he's part of are Skyry Fund, which is a site that helps uh, clients to get their compensation because of flight disruptions, and Dowcower, a unique device for dogs uh, with special software, which is used for tracking them and making an expertise for their health and their health condition and location. So hello, Ivo. Welcome to the Untold Stories podcast and thank you for agreeing to meet with me. Let's start with a little story about you, your education. Okay, sure. Uh, well, hello. Uh, it's nice to be on the podcast. Um, so you want to know a little bit about myself? Okay. Um, So I was, uh, I guess, um, I enrolled into uni when I was 19. Um, I decided to study law uh, in the UK. Um, I think uh, now in, in hindsight, I guess that was a really good idea. Uh, although at the time, I wasn't really sure that that was my thing. Um, what I knew for sure in the beginning was that I didn't want to become a lawyer after I graduated. Uh, it took me about maybe two to three weeks uh, <laughs> to to get to that conclusion. Um, but it was really good time, I suppose, to to be studying law uh, in Newcastle at that time. We had really good lecturers, and uh, what was really, um, I guess, uh, useful down the line uh, when you study law in the UK, especially, uh, you have to. Uh, how should I say, you have to absorb huge amounts of information and you have to uh, make use of that information basically and find the way uh, to extract what is most important from, you know, that information. And that's what you learn, I guess, um, during these well, three years it was while I was studying there, um, which I guess is a really useful skill Uh, when you later, if you go like into entrepreneurship, I suppose, because you have to deal with like huge amounts of uh, incoming information and you have to find a really good way how to, uh, you know, find out what is really important and what is not really important. Um, so yeah, I spent three years in, uh, in Newcastle. I spent one year in Groningen. Um, I studied a lot of uh, economics in Groningen, uh, which was again, really useful. Unfortunately, I don't think I remember anything <laughs> right now, uh, but at the time uh, it was, uh, yeah, eye-opening in a way, because if you study just law, I guess uh, it could be a bit, um, you know, limiting in a way. Um, so, yeah, and I, I graduated in 2016, I think, yeah, it was 2016 when I graduated uni, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're now in your home country. Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, I think it was uh, somehow a little bit by accident that I ended up here. 
Um, because what happened was uh, in 2016, when I graduated, I think it was um, sometime uh, in early June. And uh, I came back just, you know, to spend the summer holidays here. Um, I found, I think it, I did an internship at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, for a month, uh, which to be frank, I mean, it was interesting, I guess. It wasn't bad. Um, but I stayed in Bulgaria for one month and then another month passed. And then I decided, okay, so I'm going to find a job someplace, you know, outside of Bulgaria, basically, because I, at that time I had graduated basically with a degree in English law. So I could either go, you know, into the UK and try to practice law basically. And, uh, the way you practice law in the UK is a little bit more complicated because that first you have to find, uh, you know, an internship, then you have to basically, uh, study a master's, a specific master's for, uh, UK law. And only once you finish that, uh, do you get to actually, you know, become a lawyer. Um, so I thought to myself, well, is this something I really want to do? Because, you know, it's going to take, you know, three solid years of your life just to, you know, end up becoming a UK registered lawyer. And then imagine if you decide that's not for you, you know, three years is a really huge time investment. So I was like, well, I have to find something to do. So what I decided to do is I was going to apply into a lot of uh, NGO, uh, a lot of NGOs, basically, like uh, United Nations, um, some other NGOs connected to uh, refugees at that time, I was really interested in uh, refugee law, for example. So I thought that might be a good idea. Um, but unfortunately, uh, when it comes to like applying uh, to these uh, places, you really have to fill out like 300 applications just to get like one interview at the end. And uh, that that took me quite a while, you know, to get my first interviews. And by that time, it was already like October and I was still in Bulgaria. And I, and I started thinking to myself, wait, why am I doing it? You know, like, actually, I enjoy my life here. Why not try, you know, to find a way to basically, you know, make a living here? Uh, why do you have to, like, just go on this, like, uh, searching spree just to find, like, a job someplace outside of Bulgaria when, when actually you feel good here? Um, so slowly, I, I always had it at the back of my mind, um, to basically start a company um, because I felt that might be something that, you know, would fit my way of thinking. And um, the way I, I thought about the uh, flight delayed claims uh, because I had helped some friends of mine during uni uh, to file claims with some airlines. So I had some experience beforehand and I knew basically how the process went. And I was like, okay, so how can I automate it? How can I basically uh, structure it in such a way that we can uh, help, you know, a large amount of people using technology and not do it, you know, like in a manual way where you have to actually, you know, like write an email yourself and all of that. And uh, yeah, we started, I started uh, basically working on that project. I think it was sometime like in October. Uh, in 2016 and uh, I think the company was officially incorporated uh, in the beginning of uh, 2017 so we're talking about like January 2017 
and it took us about six months to actually uh, get the website up and running. So we started uh, officially working uh, sometime, I think it was like May or June in 2017. To your question, it was basically by accident, the way I, I stayed here, yeah. Yeah, 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 I understand. And um, you you told me that uh, maybe in this way you're practicing uh, wall, maybe? I mean, to... I mean, you know about the European uh, policies. Uh, maybe that's why you uh, continue with that project. And uh, tell the audience that's about the Skyrim Fund. And uh, I would like you to tell us more about, I mean, how does it work and how you collect the database and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the way it works is the following. So uh, we have our uh, website uh you know, like the claim platform on which people can, um, they basically, they fill in their flight details and um, dependent on, uh, you know, the specifics of people's flight details, the software basically determines whether uh, that flight disruption falls under a particular jurisdiction. So uh, we work with, uh, you know, the European laws, but not only. For example, we also cover uh, the Turkish uh Basically, every country has their own um, set of laws when it comes to regulating, you know, the airline industry. And uh, it's in specifically when it comes to passenger rights. So in Europe, in the European Union, all of these laws are harmonized. So basically, all of the countries have the same laws. Um, when you go outside of the European Union, however, every country has their own set of laws. So what, what the website does it, is it checks... Uh, the flight disruption uh, and it checks whether it falls under a specific set of laws. And if it does fall under a specific set of laws, then it figures out how much uh, compensation can you claim for, you know, the disrupted flight. And um, that's the first step. So uh, if uh, the website determines that your claim could be successful, uh, then uh, you know, you get to finish the claim on the website and uh, then that comes into our software and we start basically working on the claim. Uh, roughly, that's the way it works. Um, and then, of course, we have to find a way to either, you know, like settle the claim with the airline in a friendly way or we have to find a way to launch a claim in court. Um, yeah, so there is quite a lot of uh, legal work, um, but I think the goal is to minimize the legal work because when, when you come to, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, filing claims in court or uh, like uh, taking court action and all of that, uh, this is a really, really slow process, unfortunately. Um, so this is definitely something that we do not want to do all the time. Yeah, of course, that's that's hard. To do. Yeah, so it just it, it may take a few years. That's the problem. Like for example, claims in uh, uh, for example for uh, claims that fall under uh, the jurisdiction of Italy. Uh, you know, we have to file the court claim uh, in Italy, and in Italy it may take like two years, uh, which is yeah, a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How uh, did you build the software and? Um... I looked into your website, uh, you gathered wire 
works. How did you choose them? I mean, the whole system. How did you collect that information? Yeah, well, uh, we were very fortunate from the very beginning because we have some very good friends of mine who um, they have an IT company and uh, they were basically, uh, they helped us a lot in the beginning. Uh, they were sort of like our uh, IT partners and uh, it was with uh, their help that we developed, uh, you know, all of our, uh, you know, all the platforms that we use to basically process claims. Uh, what is really good, I think, about it is that everything that we have is custom made. Uh, we own the whole, uh, you know, like all of the licenses and the intellectual property of the software is ours. Um, so we we managed to basically uh, create a product where um, all of the um, software aspects of the product are owned by and developed by us. So. Uh, it's basically, we have this one solution, custom-made solution that covers the, the whole aspect. Um, so from the moment you file the claim on the website, uh, the moment it goes into our claim software, the payment software, all of that is uh, basically uh, ours and made custom, it's custom-made for us. Um, so we were very fortunate, um, to have really good, um, you know, IT partners in the beginning, uh, that had a lot of foresight also, uh, because I, I personally, I think it probably was going to be worse if, you know, all of these different aspects were outsourced, you know, so like using another software for, you know, the claims management process, because then, uh, it's not really yours, you know, you're, you don't really have a whole product which is entirely yours and under your control. And in our case, we keep the entirety of, uh, you know, all of the systems with us. Uh, so uh, about the IT part, I guess we were just very fortunate to have, uh, you know, really, really good, well, friends and IT partners in the very beginning. Uh, when it comes to the legal side of it, you know, with the lawyers, uh, since, uh, we work with, uh, I think something along the lines of 38, uh, different legal, um, how to say legal regimes, uh, for claiming compensation. Um, the only way you can go about, uh, you know, the, the legal side of it is that you have to find legal partners in every single country that you work with. So, for example, we have a lot of clients um, in Germany. We have a local lawyer in Germany that handles, you know, like the litigation in Germany. Uh, when it comes to Greece, we have a local partner in Greece. And that just takes time. So you have to basically a big part of my job in the beginning was, uh, you know, getting in touch with a lot of uh, like law firms in different countries, uh, you know, having like meetings, calls with them figuring out what's the best way to automate uh, the claim process. And uh, yeah, that's the way you do it. Uh, basically, and people, they, they actually, they want to work with you, uh, you know, because uh, for example, you can give them, you know, like you, you can give them a sort of an estimation of how many claims you have per month. And, uh, you know, you automate the document sharing process. And then for them, it's really easy because they get, you know, like 
I don't know, a certain amount of claims every month. They get all the documents and all they have to do is file the claims in court. Yeah, so, and it's a win-win situation basically because uh, these claims, uh, they're for uh, small amounts of money. So it doesn't make much sense if you have like, I don't know, like 10 claims per month. But if you can give them like a thousand claims per month, it changes completely because if you automate the process, actually can, it, it makes business sense for them as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That... Yeah. Mm-hmm. From my calculation, you, uh, the company is from maybe around 2016, 2017 until now. Yeah. Yes. And, yes. Uh, how did you handle the COVID situation? Because uh, the flights hit, hit shut down and yeah. the whole thing just, I mean, a lot of... Uh, yeah, well, the, the COVID situation, I think that was probably the most difficult period in our um, company uh, because what we had to do uh first we had to scale down a little bit so uh we had to basically make uh you know a lot of cuts to our budget in order to survive uh i think what we did right in the beginning was that we were very cautious uh with our spending so for example a lot of our competitors i think it was the 15th of march when everything shut down uh i think on the 20th of march we already had taken, you know, all of these crisis management decisions, you know, in order to, uh, you know, mitigate the losses. Uh, from what I saw, for example, in some of our competitors, they were pushing really hard with uh, marketing. I think it was until probably like mid-July or something like that, which I thought was a huge mistake because basically it meant spending a huge amount of, you know, huge sum of money uh on claims which weren't uh going to you know be paid out ultimately and um yeah i think uh what we did right was the um the risk management basically in the very very first days of the pandemic and then uh there was another um period which i think we played it right uh, that was i think during the delta variant times you know that i think that was the summer of 2021 when everybody thought that you know okay that's the end of COVID, everything is going to be okay and then everybody some of the our competitors started you know to you know like pump a lot of effort into marketing um which i also thought to myself that that was going to be a mistake uh because i knew that i mean it wasn't going to be okay you know i just had this feeling i was uh monitoring basically the the situation with the you know the world health organization and all of these ngos that were working in the sphere and all of them they were like no this is not going to be the end of the pandemic you know you still have to be careful and ultimately that's what happened you know because everybody thought that the 2021 summer season would be something uh you know that would be the end of COVID and it would be the beginning of business again as usual but that wasn't the case actually we had to wait until uh, this year, actually, well, not this year, but 2022, uh, for, you know, the world to start looking a little bit like normal again. Um, so yeah, I, I suppose like to summarize what we did was we were just very, very cautious about our spending, uh, which I think maybe comes from the fact that our company with Skyrefund, it's an entirely bootstrap company. We've never received venture capital. 
you know, we've never had financing in this company, unlike some of our competitors. And I think this creates really uh, good um, discipline, you know, so, so you don't spend on things that are not worth it, you know, and you're very careful with the way you spend money, which I think with some companies that are VC backed, it's not the same, you know, because you have a lot of money, you have to spend the money. And sometimes you, you make the wrong decisions when you feel like you've got the money to spend, you know. Yeah, I understand. That's that's really interesting. Maybe that that was the way that you, um, I mean, you and your colleagues uh, handle with the competitors because I saw that you got a lot of competitors in that sphere. I just want to switch the topic and uh, I would like you to tell us more about uh, the new company, Dogecoer. Um, which was invented maybe one, two years ago. And because the, that market is really interesting, the pet industry, and uh, if you want to share with us uh, more about it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the, the decision to start a company was, again, really spontaneous, I suppose. I, I mean, I never think about these things, you know, when I think about it, when I go back thinking about it, I always end up, uh, like doing something with uh, with friends of mine that I really never thought that I would do. Uh, but it just so happens that I, I suppose I get interested in these things. And then this is, you know, the natural outcome of it in the end. Uh, because what happened was uh, with a very close friend of mine, we started getting into um, uh, basically training uh, stray dogs, stray and lost dogs. Uh, so... Uh, the idea was so we started volunteering in these organizations that help uh, socialize, you know, dogs that need socializing. Uh, and we started doing that for a few months. And then uh, this friend of mine, he, he got a dog himself uh, from one of these uh, organizations. And since he's a neighbor of mine, we, uh, I, know, I see the dog every day, basically. Um, and uh, yeah, and we were thinking to... Uh, we were thinking to ourselves, you know, you see that there is this revolution going on with, you know, like with tech, with wearables, with uh, the way people monitor their own health, you know, and their own, you know, activity. And we were just thinking to ourselves, you know, why isn't this thing something that is translated into, you know, docs as well? I mean, it doesn't make any sense because... Uh, you, you have the tech already to monitor, you know, the health of living beings. And uh, so why not just use this tech to monitor, you know, dogs well-being as well. Um, and we started doing a little bit of research about it. Uh, and uh, what we found out was that uh, the majority of solutions, um, they weren't really, you know, like complete solutions. So you have, for example, like uh, a small gadget that you attach, for example, to your dog's existing collar uh, that sort of like, you know, monitors something. But this is, to myself, I mean, it, it doesn't really make sense because it's, if you want to have like a solution, you have to have the whole thing, you know. You have to like redesign the collar itself because this is what uh, dogs are wearing, you know, all the time. So um, we thought to ourselves that it was probably a good idea to start from the very beginning and make a whole redesign of what the color is. So 
what we did was uh, I, I myself I was really interested at that time in uh, you know wearables that can be integrated into clothes. Uh, I think this is something which is uh, happening right now in terms of uh, uh, you know uh, for example football teams and uh, sports teams in general. Uh, you know the players uh, they some some teams they have like smart T-shirts that monitor you know the performance of players. And I think integrating tech into clothes is something which is probably, you know, this is what the future is going to be, I guess, one day. Um, so thinking about the dog collar as, you know, a garment, a piece of clothing basically for the dog, uh, we thought that it might be a really good time to integrate tech into the collar itself. And uh, that's what we started working on. And we got really positive re response for, from people and from dog owners in general, uh, because this is something that people actually really want to know. They really want to know uh, how their dog is doing, you know, health-wise. And um, so, yeah, that's how the idea started. Um, that's how it got born. Uh, it was basically from, uh, you know, this early positive response from people uh, who wanted to know how their dog was doing. Um, so the challenge was to basically put as much tech into a dog collar as possible and to make a really durable solution, you know. So we're not just talking about, uh, you know, like a regular dog collar. We're talking about um, a high-tech dog collar that, uh, you know, it could withstand any sort of physical activity. So what I like a lot, for example, GoPro, I think as a company, GoPro is something really nice. And this is probably in a way, <laughs> minus the camera, of course, something that we want to achieve. We want to create something which is really uh, durable under all types of uh, situations, you know, either in the mountain or, you know, on the beach. Uh, and we just want to have this like durable tech device that you can always monitor your dog's uh, well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, how does the system work? I mean, um, you modified um, two, three generations of the of the device, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, what we have right now, uh, we we are on the brink of launching the second generation. Uh, so the way it works is the following. We created our MVP, which was um, uh, a smart dog collar that first off monitors the dog's location and it gives you the option to draw a fence on the map. So whenever uh, your dog leaves, for example, your uh, the perimeter around your house, uh, you, you get a notification. So that's in case your dog runs away. Um, that was the the first generation of the device where we just wanted to see whether we can, you know, like create a durable device that we can integrate into an existing color. And uh, that worked out. Um, but the second generation of the device is actually where all the difference is because the, unlike the first generation, which is focused on the dog's location, the second generation is more, well, it has the location as well, of course, but it is more focused on health metrics and uh, also having a direct uh, vet contact in, 
your application. So uh, to answer your question, the way it works, uh, the tricky part about Double Color is that uh, it's like a hybrid startup because you have from one side the hardware and from the other side you have the software. And these things always work together. And that's the challenging part of it because you're not just building, you know, like a hardware company. You're actually building a software company that has a hardware element. Um, and yeah, this is what we're trying to achieve right now. Basically, uh, the dog collar, the second generation of the dog collar that we're going to launch this year, uh, it tracks the dog's um, activity. And based on the activity, it can make health predictions uh, based on abnormal behavior. So for example, if your uh, dog is scratching a lot, or if the dog, for example, is drinking too much water, this can be an indication for an underlying health problem. And the idea is to alert the dog owner to the possible existence of the uh, health issue, and also to give the dog owner the ability to contact you know, the vet through the double color app straight away. Mm -hmm. That sounds really interesting. You're uh, doing that device, uh, I mean, the market's only in Europe or you're planning to do that abroad to Europe? Uh, well, we're planning to grow, I suppose, internationally because what we have right now, uh, the device, it has an inbuilt um, SIM card that helps you uh, transmit data. And uh, the card works in 180 countries. So what we can what we can do is uh, no matter where you are, uh, we can ship the device internationally, and it's going to work. Uh, now, uh, when it comes to which market we're going to enter first, I guess we're going to focus on Europe in the beginning, uh, simply because I think it's a mistake uh, to you know, like go super international from day one. I mean, uh, I, I think the way it works is you, you sort of see which markets are receptive to your product and then you start, you know, going into these markets first and then, you know, the growth. It, I think with our experience with Skyrofin, for example, in the beginning in Skyrofin, we entered a few markets and then sort of, the more time your company exists, the more people learn about it. Uh, at one point, you have this organic growth, which starts to happen, you know, basically worldwide. And uh, so our goal is to focus on Europe in the beginning and a few markets in Europe uh, at first and then expand. Yeah, that's the goal. And um, are there any regimes, I mean, with the database about the dogs in the different countries in different markets, something like that? Uh, Regulation-wise? Yeah. Uh, well, regulation-wise, no, uh, because of the... Um, actually, that, that, that's a really interesting point. Uh, the pet tech market is very, very deregulated right now. So it, it, it's really, it's a very good place to be. Um, of course, you have to cover some, um, you know, technical aspects. For example, like if you sell uh, gadgets on the market, you have to have this specific type of certificate. Of course, that's I me. Mean, everybody has to do that. That's not, but it's not something challenging to have uh, or you know to get in the end. Uh, so I would say that no, at this point in time, 
there there aren't any specific uh, regulations that we have to comply with. Mm -hmm. That's that's certainly interesting. Probably fortunate because you used that. Uh, I mean, with um, caring for dogs, and after that to make eyes. I'd like to uh, make like a, maybe not summary, but to ask you. Uh, about um, your business approaches in both uh, companies, maybe if you like to share with us, uh, what are they? What are the differences? Yes. Um, well, I think the the major difference between the the two projects is one of them is bootstrapped, and the other one is VC backed. So uh, in double color, we have uh, two uh, VCs that have already invested into. Uh, the company and we're trying to close soon probably our seed round uh, so the, the the difference I think is really big uh, because when it comes to double color it is really something which is very innovative and uh, in order to launch something which is really innovative you have to go through this very long phase of, uh, you know, like building your software, building your hardware, perfecting your product before the product, you know, launches on the market. And, um, you know, a lot of companies at this stage, for example, it takes them a lot of time to start generating any sort of revenue, you know, um, because you're always in the prototyping stage. You haven't, you're, you don't have your product yet. Uh, my approach, I think maybe I carry this approach from the other company, which was bootstrapped. And uh, with the bootstrap company, you have to start making profit as quickly as possible. You know, you, you cannot just, there's no way you can wait for, you know, two years uh, to just, you know, like develop your uh, product and then launch the perfect version of the product and take over the world. You know, in bootstrap companies, you just don't get that luxury because you don't have the money. Uh, in VC companies, uh, because, you know, they already invest money in you uh, beforehand, you do get this sense of having the luxury of time. Uh, but I personally, I personally hate that feeling. Uh, so, for example, in Double Color, from day one, uh, we're also building a regular dog color, so non-tech dog colors, but think about it as really uh, high-tech, durable uh, colors which don't have any tech but the idea is that once we launch our product uh, this smart device that we're going to launch can really easily be integrated into the existing colors that we that we've already sold so for example with the color from day one even though we spend a lot of time you know on R&D and developing the software for the smart color uh, we also uh, manufacture and sell regular colors to customers so we have like, for example, our online shop, which is running right now. We have customers every day uh, buying, you know, the regular colors. And once the smart color launches, they're going to get the possibility to upgrade their regular colors with the smart one, you know. So basically, we're already generating revenue, um, which I think is probably the right approach. Some people probably would disagree because they would say that, you know, that uh, detracts you from focusing only on you know the smart project which you know the smart color which is at the end why we started the company in the first place but i'm always looking for ways to start generating revenue i think 
no matter what stage you're at. I mean, I think this is something really crucial for uh, companies uh, and it doesn't matter where whether you're VC-backed or bootstrapped. I think that's something that you really have to take into account. Uh, whenever you start a company, you always have to find a way to start making revenue as quickly as possible. So I, I, I guess, I mean, the, the two companies are very different, but I think I apply the same uh, approach, you know, regardless of um, the way the company has been structured. Probably the income, I mean, it, uh, one is from VC and the other is, I mean, on your own, basically. Yeah. About the venture yeah. capital funds, what uh, would you recommend? I mean, if uh, one startup wants to turn to venture capital for some kind of funds, uh, I mean, what are the requirements? Uh, because uh, I've heard recently that it's uh, harder than before to get funds from them and to be sponsored to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Well, first, uh, that, that, that's a really good question. Um, and uh, there are a few answers, I think. Uh, so that really depends on what you want to do. Uh, because, for example, if you have an idea... Uh, which is um, really innovative in a way, uh, then probably this is going to take a lot of venture capital backing to get the idea to work. Um, and you're probably not going to have a revenue anytime soon. So when it comes to these types of ideas, uh, I think getting venture capital in these uh, circumstances is really difficult uh, because you have to find a way to convince a VC uh, fund to uh, invest in something which is not going to be profitable anytime soon. Um, so I think this is the hardest maybe circumstance to be in. Um, if you have a very far-fetched idea or if you have an idea which is, for example, something related to AI or like deep tech, stuff like that. You know, this is something which is not going to be profitable anytime soon. So you're going to have to have like an excellent pitch. You have to have uh, a really good uh, communication skills in order to, uh, you know, make the VCs believe in your idea. Um, I think uh, if you have an idea and you, you have this like very early... Uh, type of a prototype or uh, maybe like even an MVP uh, in, in these circumstances I think it's much easier to get venture capital funding um, if you have like for example I don't know like 10 customers already or something like that you know like the very very basic uh, version of your product that you can somehow sell to like a few people I think this is going to make a huge difference like a massive difference compared to just coming up to a VC with only an idea. I think this is going to be really, really difficult if you're only at the idea stage. And for example, with uh, with Double Color, uh, in the beginning, we already had like a very early prototype version of the color, which I think helped a lot because, for example, if I had just gone to the VCs, uh, saying that, oh, we don't have anything, we just have this idea, I think they would probably be really reluctant to invest. So, so the, the goal, I think, the goal is always, no matter how uh, rudimentary your uh, 
initial product is. I think the goal is to have some type of very, very simplified product in the beginning with maybe like a few customers. Uh, you know, these customers, they're, they're probably not going to be, you know, like the regular customers on the street. Probably they bought the product because they like you personally. Uh, I mean, that's the way you get your first clients. Always you, you put a lot of attention into your first clients. And I think the very, very first customers, they buy your product, not because the product is really, really good, but, but because they sympathize uh, with you, you know. Um, so I think maybe that that would be my advice is to have some type of a prototype that you've sold to maybe like a couple of people. I think this is going to make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, was that the way that you uh, were pitching the idea about double cover uh, in front yeah. of the venture capital? Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, because we already had uh, like a prototype for the color. And, uh, you know, we went to the, to the VCs saying that we already had, you know, our MVP, you know, like our, the basic product, we already had it. Um, and I think that makes a lot of difference. Yeah, sure. And, um, let's talk about, uh, Bulgaria as a country for developing a business startup. Uh, what? Well, what do you say about that? I mean, is Bulgaria a good country for developing a startup? And uh... yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Definitely. Yeah, I think we're very we're very fortunate to be here actually, uh, because I think here it, it's a really good place. First, um, you, you can make connections really easily here um, because the um, let's say like the society of people that work in, you know, like startups and uh, VCs and all of that, it, they're really well connected with each other. And, and it's really not that difficult to get in touch with some of them. And for example, from my experience, people here are very receptive. Uh, for example, uh, I've been on LinkedIn like countless times, just like getting in touch with somebody, like for example, like uh, a startup owner, uh, based in Bulgaria. So I just get in touch with them via LinkedIn and I'm like, Hey, you know what? It would be really cool to exchange some experience, you know, just because sometimes it's really good to have like a chat with somebody, um, who's, uh, sort of like new to you because like they give you a new perspective on things and, and people are very, very receptive to that. You know, it's really easy to get in touch with people. Um, it's not a very big, uh, you know, like society in a way. Uh, but it's very tight knit, and yeah, and it's uh, it's really good to be here. Uh, also, I think uh, it's really easy to start something in Bulgaria and then to basically scale it up and to start offering your products outside of Bulgaria. I think that's also um, here. It's a good place to do it. I think, yeah, and people from my experience, uh, there are a lot of smart and motivated people here uh, and, and that's something which is really important mm -hmm. sounds interesting and um, I'd like to turn back to you do you have a hard, hardships um... oh yeah oh, all the time yeah all the time all, all the time uh, I think um, the hardships uh, the well first off let's say the pandemic didn't help 
<laughs> I think that was probably like the major hardship uh, of the past few years. Um, I think hardships probably um, they're maybe mental or I don't know. that's what I was gonna say. I think that's the the biggest hardship. Yeah, because when when you're uh, when you're into like startups and uh, entrepreneurship, I think. Uh, you have to have this sort of irrational mind frame in a way uh, because it's really difficult to see how things are going to work out, uh, you know, down the line. So, for example, when you're starting, when you're starting out, uh, you know, and when you, you know, think about it rationally, uh, there is no way in which I think you can rationally see how your idea is going to work out in the end. But then, you know, for example, three years pass and you look back and you see how it actually happened, but how you didn't have any clue in the beginning that it would, you know, end up being like this. So I think because I'm a very rational person myself and I really like to structure my, uh, you know, plans really well and really like down the line into the future, I really have, I really like having like a very clear plan of action. And uh, I always have to fight with myself, uh, you know, and to basically say to myself that um, things are not going to work out the way I want them to work out, um, but they're probably going to work out somehow, you know. And uh, yeah, this irrationality is something that I guess you always have to uh, have. And it's something which I'm trying to embrace in a way uh, to have a little bit more because that helps you also be more adventurous. And that sometimes it helps you um, think in a much larger um, context, you know, because, for example, when you when you start focusing a lot of on, on, on a startup project, for example, and you start to get really specific, you know, you get into the details, you get into, uh, you know, like very tight um manner of thinking uh, whereas if you want to actually make your project grow you have to think outside of the box you know you have to think on a large scale uh, which is frankly not the most rational thing sometimes but uh, it's the only way to make sure that your company actually grows you know so I think this is probably the biggest hardship yeah is to uh, disengage from thinking on a small scale and to start thinking on a, you know, large scale, even though, uh, you know, like your everyday experience demands from you to think on a smaller scale, you know, that's the, and there is this fight going on every day, you know, because for example, I, I can give an example, for example, in Skyrifon right now, uh, we are like a lot of the, pro the problems that we're facing are problems that are probably going to get solved in, you know, like a few months, you know, like, for example, some small things on the website or in the flow of the software and things like that. But you have to also find time to think about how to grow, you know, the company, which you don't actually uh, spend that much time thinking on when you have so many little problems to fix, you know, and you have to find a way to disengage from the little things and to think more, you know, Think bigger in a way. Yeah, yeah, I understand. You got um, these projects, new ideas. Um, do um, do you have like um, maybe stressory program in your daily routine? Like maybe 
doing some sport or something like that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I always, I always, I'm always into like different things. Uh, sports, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, we practice a lot of like calisthenics or how do you call it? Like with, uh, you go out with the boys at, you know, your local park and you do push ups and stuff like that. Yeah, that's something that we do. Um, of course, yeah, I have, I, I, I my uh, approach, I think. Uh, especially over the course of the past few years is that I really try to disengage from work the moment that uh, I'm out of the office. So uh, I know probably that's something that not that many people do, but let's say I work until like seven o'clock, you know, and once I go out of the office and for example, it's a Thursday, I just stop thinking about work entirely. Like, for example, I don't, take my laptop at home uh, once I finish work, you know, I leave it at the office simply because if I have to bring it, of course, I'm going to bring it. If there's like a problem or something which is happening, of course, I'm not going to just overlook it. But um, I think my approach is just, you know, once you you give your best at work, but then you have to find time for yourself because otherwise uh, your creativity, you know, goes down the drain. Uh, I think your productivity also falls a lot. Um, I mean, I prefer to like uh, take uh, a few days off just to like get my strength back up. And then I, I see that I perform much better. You know, if had I not done it, I think it would have been a disaster, you know. Uh, so, yeah, this is something that is on my mind a lot of the time. Uh, and the way I deal with it is simply I know when to put a stop. You know yeah of course of course yeah that's why i asked you that question because i think that uh we need to have that work work outside balance because i mean that's important in order to grow the other thing that i would like to ask you is that um, in both projects you're almost the same team right i mean you're uh with your mother maria and um with your colleague kawian uh Tell me about uh, your relationship with them. I mean, how you how uh, how you stay so uh, so long time with them? I mean, tell tell us more about that. Well, the, the, yeah, the the first thing is that we trust each other, which is, I, I suppose the most important thing. And uh, the other important thing is uh, that everybody is sort of like specialized in a different field, and uh, just we're, we're very different people. And we bring a lot of uh, different um, things on the table. So, uh, for example, I know nothing about numbers. Uh, that's why my uh, yeah my teammates they're much better with numbers than me. So, for example, whenever there's something which is related to numbers, I just know not to mess with them. You know, because I, I'm probably gonna get everything wrong. Um, and yeah, I think we're very lucky because first we trust each other and we're very different, you know, and this is actually something which is really good in our case because, uh, everybody has their own field of, uh, expertise, uh, and we don't meddle with each other, you know, uh, which is really good because then we don't do double work. You know, I don't have to double check their work. They don't double check my work and, uh, things get done. Yeah. 
So I think uh, that's probably the most important um, quality in having um, like co-founders is that you have to find people that are uh, different from you. Um, and so your weaknesses, for example, uh, there is their strength. Uh, and so if you're lucky to have these, these type of people with you, uh, I think that's going to make for a successful team for sure. Mm -hmm. And um, is the team uh, maybe the most important thing, like the root of the using mm -hmm. a startup or a company or yeah i think so yeah you have to have the right team yeah for example a lot of people fail because they have the wrong team or because they're alone i think for example being a single founder i think that's one of the most difficult things that you can do uh to be alone i think you really have to have an enormous uh enormously strong mentality in order to you know like pull through um, I think that would be immensely difficult. Like, for example, because when you're in business, you always doubt yourself, you know, and if you have other teammates, they sort of like, uh, they help you go through this process in a way uh, and not to, uh, you know, feel worse or more anxious. Um, but if you're alone, I think, I mean, successful single founders, I think they're amazing. They're like the strongest people on the planet, really. Um, so yeah, you have to have a good team. Th that's a, I think that's a must. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be like a three-person team or a four-person team. Even like two people, I think it's enough. Maybe three is best. Uh, of course, that depends on what people, um, what their specialities are, I suppose. But having a good team is a necessity, yeah. Really interesting. And um, I, I would like to conclude, um, as usual, uh, our podcast is uh, famous because of our last question. It, and that's about uh, what's your untold story? I mean, what's something that's um, interesting about you? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not very interesting. Who knows? Uh, no, I will. I, uh, I, for example, I well, people don't know about me, uh, well, some of the people that I work with at least, uh, is that, for example, I, I am very interested in music. And uh, I, I've been playing guitar since I was 13 or 12. Uh, so I've always played in bands. Uh, we write songs, record albums, play live. This is something that I do a lot. Uh, and that brings me a lot of joy, I guess. Um, it's very different from the other things that I uh, do, um, but it's very, very fun. Uh, so I say probably that music is a really, really important part of my life. And uh, do you have some story about uh, music, something interesting? Oh, yeah. Well, we've, we've played a, a lot of shows uh, I guess, yeah, I mean, uh, we've been on tour a few times, uh, like playing in different cities every night. Uh, we played in Zawetno, in Dika, where Lili Ivanova played, you know, so I can say that I shared the stage with Lili Ivanova, which is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> stuff like that, yeah. Um, but yeah, you get a lot of stories when you play music and uh, you meet a lot of nice people. 
that that's something really cool because uh, like the startup circle in Sofia, for example, the music circle in Sofia is really tight knit and everybody knows each other as well. And you get to meet a lot of people like uh, a lot of famous uh, musicians that you like. Uh, uh, you get to meet them. You get to see whether they're cool people. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. It's really interesting to see. Um, and yeah, maybe sharing the stage with Lili Vanova is the highlight of my life. Probably. It's going to be the highlight of my life in the future. So. <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds very good. Yeah. And um, Ivao, thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, sharing your um, experience with us. And um, I hope that we will see each other with your next project. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much for uh, yeah, inviting me on the podcast. It was really fun. Uh, I really love sharing... Uh, my stories with you. And I'm also really happy that we caught up again after so many years. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked the episode, make sure to share it and follow us on social media at Startup Vogelgrad for more awesome content.